For scripture reading this morning, I'll be reading from Hebrews uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. That's Hebrews 4, 1 through 16. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his words were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has seen, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 32. <clears throat> we'll continue our study in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 32, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter. One of my memories of childhood uh, is of taking the garbage out in the evening after dinner. And during the winter months, it was dark. And as a youngster, I was not fond of the dark. So we lived kind of at the edge of the woods, and when the garbage needed to go out, I would walk out across the driveway and there was this place at the edge of the woods where the garbage was to be dumped. And it was also the place then where you dug the fishing worms when you went fishing, okay, so it served two purposes. But the garbage needed to get there. And you know what the woods are like at night? There are strange noises. And of course I knew that there are certain kinds of creatures that lived in the woods as well. 
and as a somewhat, at times, irrational six, five, six, seven, eight-year-old, I heard far more noises than were actually there. So there were always the excuses, sure, this can wait till tomorrow, all kinds of things, but the answer was always no. It needs to go now. So bravely, carrying the garbage pail out across the driveway toward the edge of the woods, facing the dark woods, and then I would dump the garbage, and you know what happened next, right? Turn and run to the house. Run. And I heard far more things on the way back to the house than I heard going out. Uh, the ears are just tuned. You see, fear is an incredible motivator. And fear motivates people to the kinds of action and the kinds of behaviors that can almost be stunning when you see people perform in certain ways. But as most of you who have experienced fear, uh, you would say, probably with me, I don't want to live in that kind of fear all the time. Because fear does have torment. And to be motivated by fear day after day after day after day becomes exhausting, debilitating, and wearing. And we long for something to set us free from the fear so that we might live in one of its antidotes or antithesis, which is faith. The posture of fear and the posture of faith are very, two very, very different postures. Jacob is a man who's been living and running with a deep fear, and for good reason. The big story, he's on his way back to the promised land. God is bringing him back. And yet, as we saw last time, he's still bringing some of the baggage along. He's carrying some of the idols from Haran. And it seems as though God is saying to him, Jacob, you're not quite ready yet for the promised land. We've got something else to learn. <clears throat> so Jacob's been running in fear for 20 years. He's been running initially from his brother Jacob. And then he ran from his father-in-law Laban. And now he's facing his brother Esau. He's preparing to meet his brother. And the last word he had from Esau over 20 years before this was, as soon as my father is dead, I'm going to kill you. That's the last word he had from his brother. And now he's on the cusp of going back into Esau's territory, not knowing what was going to happen. So what does faith in God look like? One of the questions we're going to ask here today is what does faith in God look like when faced with circumstances that incite great fear? Or how do we, as humans, how do we move from being scheming, the scheming manipulations of fear to the confident, hope-filled actions of faith? Because you see, Jacob is not the only scheming, manipulative person who has populated planet Earth. 
there are a few in Rockingham County. Maybe quite a few. There's some, maybe even quite a few in this room, who know what that's about. Or do it, but don't know what it's about. Because it's so intrinsic to who they are, it's tied up in their very name. Jacob. Jacob. This story today is a story within a story, within a story, within a story. The big story is God's story of creation, fall, and redemption. The story inside of that is the patriarchal story of Jacob's exile and now return. Fleeing for his life from his brother Esau, whom incidentally he had tricked, deceived, out of his birthright and blessing. Jacob has just survived what was to be the last stormy encounter with his fickle, equally deceptive father-in-law. And they've agreed on a truce in which neither of them would cross the line at Gilead to pursue or harm the other. So it's kind of like, we've got all that off the chest now. Oh, but I'm coming home, and there's Esau. There's Esau. Let's read Genesis chapter 32, <clears throat> beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> Pardon me. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he called, This is God's camp. I'm sorry. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent them to tell my Lord, in order that I might find favor in your sight. <clears throat> and the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, <coughs> pardon me, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. 
He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please, tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Remember the overall journey here. Jacob, exiled from the promised land, gone to Bethel, where he encounters God. And he encounters God as the sun is setting. And there God promises to bring him back. And if you, if you see this, as, it's um, three, three steps and three steps. Three steps down, three steps up. From the promised land to Bethel. He builds the monument. He's encountered God. God has promised him, I'm going to bring you back. The next step is Haran. And while Haran overall is an important place in God's purposes for Jacob, he's in exile. He's away from home. This is not where he wants to be. And yet, even there, God prospers him so that he leaves Haran finally after 20 plus years, a wealthy man with a large family. So, leaving Haran, he now comes to another place where he meets God again. This time he encounters God at night. And he doesn't know whom he has encountered until the sun is rising. His name is changed. Something significant happens here. And then he comes back to the promised land. When he comes back to the promised land, he comes back limping. 
but he's a different man. And when he comes back, we'll see in the next chapter, he's the kind of man who can now be reconciled to his brother. Okay? Leaves out of fear. Comes back limping, but he's reconciled. Reconciled to Esau. And it's a beautiful chapter, chapter 33. Fortunately, we have that one before 34. In this more immediate story, chapter 32 and 33, we have five basic scenes. And I want you to notice these scenes. The first scene, Laban is gone. They've made the truce. Jacob sees a second camp. So if you imagine yourself camping in the wilderness somewhere with your family, and suddenly you realize you're not alone after all. You thought you were out in the middle of nowhere. There's a second camp. And this camp is a camp of the messengers of God. That's an interesting way to start the story. He says, oh, this is God's camp. And we just kind of happened into it. God has been present here. He's here with his hosts. He hasn't been camping alone. And that must have been a very interesting recognition after what took place between Jacob and Laban. This struggle between father-in-law and son-in-law. Two people highly skilled in the craft of deception and manipulation to suddenly realize, hey, God was here. God's messengers are here. In the midst of our fear, I want you to remember the hosts of heaven are present. God is present. No matter what the circumstances that grip the heart in fear, remember there is an unseen camp. There are two camps, yours and God's. Elijah saw them, his servant did not. Jesus, in the hour of trial, received the ministry of this camp. But his disciples, though the camp was there, his disciples fled in fear. And I'm certain there's not a person here who has not known that deep, gripping fear in some specific situation and circumstance you faced and are maybe facing right now, just remember, the second camp is there. The second camp is there. When you find yourself in the grip of fear and the most natural thing to do is what Jacob always did, and that is to try to manipulate the circumstances and manage and control the people around you, out of fear, Remember, God is present. Okay, the second scene, Jacob now sends messengers to his brother Esau. And, and this, is, this is interesting because uh, as I read this, it's also an action of fear. Jacob is terrified about meeting his brother Esau. Jacob was, Esau was going to kill him. And so how does he announce to Jake, how does he announce to his brother Esau that, hey, I'm back in town. How does he do that? Well, he sends messengers. And 
that what they say is, um, Jacob, your brother, is back in town, and he's not coming back like he left by himself with a stick in his hand. He's coming back, and he's coming back with oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. So you be sure to tell Esau, Jacob's in town, but he's here, and he's not by himself. He's got this vast collection of stuff. Jacob, who left, as we might say, with his tail tucked between his legs, running for his life, is coming back with a multitude of, of people and a vast collection of stuff. He's a wealthy, powerful man. Okay, and... Uh, can I be so candid, is that when we make those presentations to other people, which incidentally we do, we, we stack our deck very carefully in situations of fear, we want it to be presented as strongly as possible that we're coming from a position of strength and power and influence with lots of resources. And when we find ourselves needing to do that, just, just pause for a moment and see what might be underneath it fear. We're terrified. We're afraid. You see, how, how would I know that? Guess. One chance. Okay. There is so much posturing and posing in our world today. There's so much posturing and posing, even by Christians. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's not so subtle. There are statements of prestige, power, wealth, influence, fame, friends, name-dropping. Oh, I know this and I know them and we're friends and I had coffee with and I had lunch with and, and you know, my neighbor is and we had a, I had a conversation with. And what are we doing? We're trying to shore up our timidity, our fear, trying to build this wall of strength, seeking to impress, and I think, in Jacob's case, even overwhelm even overwhelmed with his power and resources. But what was lying right behind it, in the very heart of who Jacob was, was absolute terror. He was afraid, terribly afraid. Then we come to the third scene. The messengers have gone to find Esau, and there's a whole play of language there that my skills don't allow me to talk intelligently about it. But if you find a, a good commentary on the word Edom and Esau, uh, there's a whole history of Jacob and Esau's relationship around the, the porridge and the hairy skin and the ruddy face tied up in the language that's told in this story here. It's fascinating. So this is all evoked, the history, their history is all evoked by finding Esau in Edom. Everybody's remembering what took place, vividly remembering. The messengers come back and say, hey, by the way, we found Esau. And when he found out you're in town, he started coming to meet you. And he's coming with 400 men. Ooh. That's enough to dissipate the fear, right? No, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. The fear just escalates. 
Because you see, most likely this is exactly what Esau is doing. Esau is afraid too. Jacob's afraid. Esau's afraid. They left with an intense burning anger and hatred for each other. 20 years have passed. The assumption is it's still there. Nothing has changed. And fear is at the heart of both of these men. And both of them are posturing as powerful men to be reckoned with. And they are. They are. And it says Jacob is afraid, greatly afraid. And there are three things he does immediately. And it's, in some ways, it's all the same stuff. Okay? The games go on. And you know how these games are played. You've watched them. Not closely, of course, but you've watched them go on. Immediately he thinks of another strategy. And now there's a bit of a defensive protective strategy in the fear. It's not just a big bluff. It's more than that. It's now, let's divide for preservation. So he immediately divides his company in hopes of saving some of them. You see, Jacob is smart. He's a smart guy. There's a lot of stuff he can manage. There's a lot of stuff he has managed and manipulated and cleverly, deceptively managed his entire lifetime. He's Jacob for a reason. He's a good Jacob. He's a good deceiver. And the posturing continues because he is really, really clever. He's good at this. He divides his company up. And then he does something that is wise. He prays. And this prayer, again, could be a sermon by itself because it does unpack a powerful way of imploring God. And incidentally, uh, most Bible scholars say this is the longest prayer recorded in the book of Genesis. So, Jacob now is getting desperate. And he prays. He says, God, you're the one who told me back in Haran to pack it up and come back. You told me that. And you said you were doing it for my good. Where's that? What's going on here? You said it's for my good. This looks like disaster looming. You told me to pack up and come back. And then there's a bit of honesty that creeps in. He says, God, I know. I know I'm not worthy of anything you've done for me. But I want you to remember, I left this place with a staff in my hand and nothing more. I'm coming back with a company, a large family, a lot of livestock, a lot of assets. And I know that's a product of your blessing. And the next line is basically, but help, help me, please. I'm in trouble. You said I will do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. That's looking threatened at the moment. Looks more like we'll be sanded upon the seas. Help, God. And I want you to note that this is the kind of prayer that often gets prayed 
in an exodus. Of the children of Israel prayed it beside the Red Sea. The children of Israel prayed it beside bitter waters. The children of Israel prayed it when they were starving and hungry and didn't know where the food was going to come from. And, okay, let's be honest, we've all prayed this prayer in some fashion. Help, God! Didn't you say? This doesn't look like that. What's up with this? It's not a bad prayer. It's probably more important than all the planning and scheming that Jacob's done up to this point and is still going to continue to do. Because Jacob is still going to try to get this one sorted out and planned out so that he can come out on the top end again. Because he's pretty protective of Jacob and now his company. So he ramps up the presentation. He doesn't just tell Esau about the great company that he has. He actually compiles a gift for his brother. And this is over 500 animals, folks. Over 500 animals that he assembles as a gift for his brother. And that was a lot of animals back then, just like it's a lot of animals today. And historians have said that when towns and villages had to give their annual gifts to kings for protection, this would have represented something much larger than the average town in Canaan would have given to the king for protection for an annual gift. This is a big gift. It's a huge gift. Okay, And he's not just content to give him a gift. He stacks it and presents it in such a way that it's, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, Jacob's good at this. He's still doing it. Yeah, he's prayed. Believe me, he's prayed. He's prayed, God help me, I'm in terrible trouble. But he's still thinking, how can I manage this? What can I do? How can I sort this out? And he's really good at it. So he stacks it out. You know, 200 female goats with 20 male goats. And they go. And they meet Esau. And they tell Esau, this is a gift for you, Esau, and, and Jacob's coming. Okay? And then it's 200 ewes and 20 rams. This is a gift for you, Esau, and oh, by the way, Jacob's coming. And then it's 30 camels and their calves. This is a gift for you, Esau, and Jacob's coming. I have to pause right there. I have a friend an entrepreneur friend who I met about two months ago, and he said, pray for me. My wife has decided she wants a camel. <laughs> you have to know this husband and wife relationship. And I said, well, I guess then, since she wants it and she can write checks, she's going to have a camel by next month? He said, probably. I don't want a camel. She wants a camel. The next month I met him, I said, camel? He said, yep, camel. This past month, I saw a picture of the camel. He and the camel were not getting on that well, but the wife is happy, and that matters for something. This, folks, is 30 camels and their calves, and this is stage three of the present. Stage three. I mean, this is a setup, folks. This is a setup to impress. After the camels, their donkeys, And the message, Jacob's coming. 
And notice we now get inside Jacob's head. For it says, verse 20, he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, once he's appeased, then I'll see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Perhaps he will accept me. And then his last move is to send his wife and family across the river Jabbok, uh, really a small swollen spring probably at this time. And he stays alone by himself in the canyon, not out in the open toward Esau, but back in the canyon where the river Jabbok comes down through. As the sun sets, Jacob is there by himself. Terrified. Absolutely terrified of what was going to happen tomorrow. And then we have scene four. And I can only imagine the escalation of fear one more time. He's there by himself. Everybody's gone. And suddenly, there's the grip of a strong man on his shoulder. What would be your first thought? It's dark. What's your first thought? Esau. The wild guy. The guy that knows these hills and mountains. He's the hunter. Esau! The rascal! And he starts fighting. And he doesn't give up. Neither of them give up. And he's fighting this man. He's wrestling with this man. And they're locked. And they wrestle and they wrestle and they wrestle. And they're wrestling until the sun is beginning to come up in the morning. Jacob, driven, energized, motivated by fear. This other guy, who knows? But he's tough. He's really tough. And you read this passage not knowing the last verse. There's an incredible ambiguity that just goes through it. It's just, it's muddy, unclear. The language isn't clear. We don't know who this is. But it's an incredible, incredible struggle. It was a man. This man, when he saw that he wasn't just prevailing, something different happens, though, that indicates the presence of a supernatural. I don't think any of you likely have touched someone on the hip and put their joint out of socket. Okay, that's what happens here. They're both wearing down as men. And so, he just pulls the supernatural and goes... Okay, you'll remember that, Jacob, for a while. And suddenly Jacob realizes this is no ordinary man. Something else is going on. Who are you? Hey, who are you? Bless me, whoever you are. In other words, get me out of this death grip. Set me free. Wish me well. And the response is basically, so what's your name? Oh, 
And you know, sometimes a name, our name is the most precious thing to us. It's music to our ears when someone says our name. In this situation, this wasn't music to the ears. This was confession time. This is confession time. Jacob says, the deceiver, the manipulator. That's me. That's me. And whoever this man is, this man says, you're no longer going to be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel. Israel, for you have striven with God. You've been wrestling with God. Now, there are all kinds of theological things to explore at that point, which we're not going to do. Jacob has been wrestling with God. God has touched Jacob on the hip. There's been the pop, the pain. Jacob doesn't give up. He says, tell me who you are. The question is not answered other than, you, Jacob, have striven with God. That's the hallmark of your life going forward. You were a deceiver. You've striven with God. Name, please. Name, please. And at the last request for a name, this man blesses Jacob. And see, Jacob has been wrestling and struggling for that blessing his entire lifetime. He's been trying to get it everywhere he goes. And now, not through manipulation, not driven by fear, but in the surrender of faith. God blesses Jacob. Jacob says, I have seen God face to face, and I'm alive to tell the story. Peniel, let's name this place. Jacob left that camp a changed man. <clears throat> God had prepared him to enter the promised land, humbled, limping, but touched by God. And I want you to note something specifically. God prepared Jacob to enter the promised land in a posture for reconciliation with his brother. The games are over. The posturing, the manipulation, the deception, all those games that are being played, they're over. And we'll see that in the next chapter. How often in your own struggle of fear, fear that drives you to manipulating, controlling, managing people, managing things, desperately trying to keep a handle on things, how often in your struggle with people may you finally wake up to the reality it's not merely a man you're struggling with. It's God. It's God himself with whom you have been wrestling. And God wants to change you from one who strives with people, who deceives and struggles and postures, to one who gives way and surrenders in faith to God. God wants to change you to prepare you to enter the promised land. And the fear gives way to faith. But this faith leaves you weakened, limping, maybe even in pain. And you're limping 
and weakened, but you are now in a posture to be reconciled to your brother rather than playing all these games that we've become so good at playing. And we see in scene five, in the next chapter, Jacob and Esau meet and they're reconciled. Where in life do you find your heart pounding in fear? Where do you find yourself running from the consequences of past deceit and manipulation? From maybe people whom you've cheated? Situations you've contrived for your own advantage? And you're on this pilgrimage from exile to homecoming. But you're being forced to face the brokenness that is you. And you're simply growing weary, growing tired of all this sham, all this manipulation, and all this scheming that's required to manage this life. You're growing weary of it. And you thought you were wrestling with a man or with your spouse, or with your neighbor. Or maybe you said, surely I'm wrestling with the devil. And you find out it's God who is striving, striving with you to prepare you for a reconciliation in the promised land. And he wants you to walk out of that encounter with a new name, a new identity, a new posture toward life, a new posture toward people, a new posture toward the situations that are painful, that are difficult, that surround you, that previously ignited and stoked your fears. And in those fears, you manipulated and you deceived. God wants you now to walk out, maybe with a limp, but knowing you have wrestled with God and his mark is on you. And you've learned that fear is directed appropriately toward God in faith. And when I'm in this confident, trusting relationship with God, I have no one else to fear except God himself. And maybe you too will discover that in weakness, in human weakness, we are strong when that weakness causes us to cast ourselves upon God. Luther, in that well-known hymn, writes, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Thus ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, Lord of rest, is his name. From age to age the same, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, is our God today. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Are you wrestling with a man? Do you know the fear? Surrender in faith, and God will prepare you for the promised land. The promised land of reconciliation.